This podcast is for general information only. It is not intended as a substitute for general health care services. If you have medical conditions, you need to see your doctor. Use of this information is at the user's own risk. Welcome to FitRx with Dr. Greg Dennis. Join me as we challenge the standard sick model of healthcare. This is your source for everything health, wellness, prevention, fitness, biohacking, and more. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of FitRx. I'm your host, Dr. Greg Dennis. We are going to talk more about nutrition today and weight loss and optimizing health with uh, a little bit different twist on it today, something called muscle-centric medicine. So I'm excited to just get into what that is. My guest today is Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Uh, she uh, received her doctorate in osteopathic medicine um, from Arizona. She is board certified in family medicine. Uh, she also has a background in nutrition and has studied vitamin and mineral metabolism, chronic disease prevention, management, and physiological effects of diet composition. Uh, she is a research clinical fellow in nutritional science and geriatrics from the uh, Washington University in St. Louis. So, Dr. Lyon, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. All right. So, if you will, tell our listeners just a little bit more about you and maybe how you got into doing what you're doing. And we're going to define a little bit more later about what muscle-centric medicine is. But uh, did you start in traditional family practice and now you're here? Just kind of tell us a, a little bit about your journey of getting to this point. Yeah, you bet. So I founded the Institute for Muscle-Centric Medicine, and it's the concept that muscle is the largest organ in the body. It is an endocrine organ, and it really dictates everything about our health and wellness. People often ask me, did I always think this way? Have I always been interested in nutrition? And the answer to that simply is yes. I started studying nutrition at 17. I graduated high school early, moved in with my godmother, who actually is one of the OGs in functional medicine. Her name is Elizabeth Lipsky. Graduated high school early, moved in with her. She had a nutrition practice because she's a PhD in nutrition. And that really set my path. At 17, I decided I was going to study uh, human nutrition, vitamin, mineral metabolism. Did that in University of Illinois, at the University of Illinois with my mentor, Dr. Donald Lehman, who is still my mentor today. For those of you that don't know him, he is a world-class expert in nutritional sciences. I then went to medical school, obviously, and I did two years of psychiatry following uh, osteopathic school, which I know that you're an osteopath, two years of psychiatry, University of Louisville, three years of family medicine, and then I did a postdoc at WashU in nutritional sciences, geriatrics, and obesity medicine. And you know, it was really in my fellowship where I realized that we we're constantly focusing on the wrong tissue. We're always talking about being over fat and obesity, but actually that is symptomology of a root cause issue, which is being under muscled. And that sure. ultimately, if you can address skeletal muscle and skeletal muscle health, you can change everything. So I'm, I'm curious with your background in nutrition, it sounds like you started really early as you got into medical school, uh, obviously, you know, they don't teach us a lot about nutrition and then, you know, one could argue what they do teach us is wrong. And so, uh, how was that for you going through medical school with the knowledge that you already had? 
I would say the nutrition aspect, it was insignificant in terms of, I was very mission focused, right? It didn't matter to me that I had a, whatever the semester courses on nutrition, because I was already trained. Um, and also the information that they teach you. I really feel like if you are going to your physician for nutrition advice, it has to be a really specific type of nutrition. You're not going to go to your anesthesiologist for nutrition. I mean, maybe you are, but I think that we have to define why in which we're actually going to see a physician. So it didn't bother me much. Uh, Cause again, I was very mission focused. Yeah. I didn't really like medical school, but I didn't care what they were teaching about nutrition at the yeah. time. So that that's great that I, I guess you, you had that background at least, and you kind of knew you said you were, you know, very laser focused, you know, it took me a while, I guess, to figure out, you know, I went, went with the masses and practiced, I guess, more standard of care for many, many years only to find out, even though I was always into fitness myself, but I always practiced, I mm -hmm. guess, more traditional medicine. And then it just took me a while to figure out that, you know what, this isn't working and, uh, people, people aren't getting better. And, uh, so I made a, a drastic shift, but I mean, that's awesome that, that you recognize that really early in your career yeah. and, and not a little bit later. So, yeah, I think that it's allowed me to be able to confidently and comfortably talk about this concept of muscle or uh, that muscle is the organ of longevity because of studying it for so long, you know, I'm 20 years deep into doing this. So, um, I think that if individuals understand that it's not a body fat tissue issue, it's not, it's not really about obesity anymore. It really is about skeletal muscle. And luckily it's the tissue we could change. So let's get into that a little bit. So, uh, you came up with muscle centric medicine. So was this pretty quickly after you graduated residency that, that you kind of started to develop these protocols and yeah, I mean, these protocols were already in development, you know, always, as soon as I hit medical school, I'd been thinking about these things. And then of course, when you go into fellowship, then you become highly trained in your field of study and it teaches you how to think. And I was doing a combined fellowship. So I did research for two years along with clinical practice. And that really made me protocol focused and really solution oriented in a way that could be applied in different domains of medicine and also with different people. So define, if you will, I mean, what is muscle centric medicine? Yeah. I know you muscle, talked about it a little bit, but yeah. Yeah. So muscle centric medicine is the concept that skeletal muscle is the organ of longevity. And while we think about it oftentimes as it relates to locomotion, that's just a byproduct of actually what it is. It, it has metabolic properties. So it's the metabolic sink. It's responsible for 80% or so of glucose disposal, which is the carbohydrates that you're ingesting. It's important as it relates to its endocrine function, releasing myokines, which travel throughout the body and, uh, you know, act systemically, which part of exercise acts systemically in ways in which we haven't thought about, you know, it's responsible for a large site of lipid oxidation. Everyone talks about cholesterol worried about managing cholesterol. Well, if you have more skeletal muscle, then, you know, you can manage your cholesterol better. And in addition, if an individual gets injured, skeletal muscle is what's going to save you. It's your amino acid reservoir. So my practice is really focused on optimizing for body composition, really focused on skeletal muscle, really focused on keeping hormones optimized, decreasing inflammation and living a lifestyle that is very undomesticated. So movement is key. So the difference in this, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the difference in this versus a more traditional weight loss 
protocols is if somebody comes into you and they're significantly overweight, you're going to focus on building muscle rather than just focusing on the weight loss. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, uh, adipose tissue should take care of itself. If you optimize for dietary protein and you optimize for skeletal muscle, fat tissue is that, you know, that's going to be diminished. Okay. Um, well, so, so let's get into, I guess, how we do that. So, you know, somebody, you know, obviously if there's significantly overweight, you know, they're probably not moving much. They're going to have a hard time maybe getting started building muscle. And of course they, they hurt, you know, cause they're overweight. And so I, I guess let's get into maybe some of the steps on how people yeah. in, increase their muscle mass. So first of all, my patient population are highly motivated. I typically am seeing people that maybe you know, I have really two groups. I take care of a lot of kind of the CEO elite military operator types, which they don't want a lot of handholding. They're just like, Hey, Dr. G, tell me what I'm going to do. You know, I'm functioning at a high level. I want to function at an even higher level. And then the other group is typically women who are coming to me for weight loss, hormone optimization, or they have fringe issues that no one has been able to figure out, whether it's GI or fatigue or whatever it is. The foundation of my practice definitely is in nutritional sciences. I mean, so if you're coming to me, you're, we're going to be talking about building skeletal muscle. And the way in which you do that is you have to be very strategic about how you optimize for dietary protein. And especially right now, there's a lot of hype around plant versus animal protein and the media and the environment and all that stuff that you're hearing isn't real. So we obviously have to get on the same page about the narrative. Once we understand that the narrative that we're hearing and mainstream media is not accurate as it relates to nutritional sciences, then we can think about, well, what does the evidence say? The evidence says that the RDA for protein, which is 0.8 grams per kilogram is low and it does not support healthy aging. It is defined as a minimum amount, but certainly does not optimize for skeletal muscle. So the next thing that you have to think about is, okay, well, what do I do? Well, you first determine what is your ideal body weight and if it's 125 pounds, then your dietary protein intake goes to, you know, 125 grams. People will say, God, that's so high. And I would say, well, you could reduce it, but the benefits of replacing say carbohydrates or fats with dietary protein is pretty clear in the literature. It's not necessary if you're controlling for calories and you're meeting enough to really maintain your skeletal muscle and help keep it you know, optimized and growing and keeping it healthy, then you can adjust for dietary protein. It doesn't really matter. So, so specifically, what does that mean? Ahead. It means 30 to 50 grams of dietary protein per meal, period, end of story of high quality animal based, or if you are vegan or vegetarian, you can use a lower quality protein, plant-based protein, and then you have to add in amino acids. And that's really what you're looking to do. Again, you define it based on, are you looking to lose, maintain, or build muscle? But regardless, it's 30 to 55 grams. Okay. Protein. Yeah. So uh, if I heard you right, what you just described, you used a woman as an example, but about a pound of, uh, excuse me, a gram of protein per pound of body weight. Is that uh-huh. about accurate? Okay. Now, is that hold true for men as well? Yes. Okay. Now, what about a, a very active person like myself, who's a weightlifter would, would those, would that go up 
No, not necessarily. I mean, you could if you wanted to, but it depends on your personal N of one. So if you do better on higher carbohydrates, it really depends on what you are doing for your training, you know? Mm -hmm. um, but you could easily say one gram per pound ideal body weight is, you know, would be definitely enough to cover you. If you're looking to build muscle, could you increase that? Yeah, totally. Gotcha. Okay. So to get that much protein, uh, like you said, I mean, people are going to have to, it sounds like, I mean, their meals are going to be based around protein and around lean meat pretty much. Is that correct? Is that accurate? Um, yeah. I mean, meals should all be protein forward for sure. Um, and so I'm sure you get this question a lot from women, but you know, women are going to ask, well, if I eat that much protein and especially if I'm working out, I mean, I don't want to get too big. Isn't that going to make me bulky? Right. I, every woman wishes that every woman that trains wishes that that's going to happen. Yeah. It is so difficult to put on muscle mass. Um, you know, some of like Alan Argon's has, you know, he's done so much great work in this space and they determined that if an individual is untrained, you can put on about two pounds of muscle a month, which for the first year, which is definitely a lot, the chances of that happening. I mean, that is someone who is really pushing. I mean, most people put on one pound maybe. And then again, you know, you're changing your body composition, you know, you can, you know, you determine how much by what you're doing. It's very hard to get bulky. Yeah. yeah. Nearly impossible. Um, and, I mean, and unless so, you're doing a lot of injectable drugs, which I'm sure people are not. Right. Right. Um, and, and so tell us a little bit more about maybe what that looks like on a, on a daily basis, uh, you know, tr getting that much protein. I mean, are you going to have, is that a lot of egg whites? That just so no. So, so basically for every one gram of dietary protein, it's seven for every one ounce, it's seven grams of protein. If it's an animal bearing protein source, if it's cow, if it's beef, it's, if it's, if it's cow, if it's bison, if it's turkey, chicken, those are all gravity bearing, um, beings, meaning they walk or they fly, which I guess flying wouldn't be considered gravity, but they all walk. So for every one ounce of dietary protein, there's seven grams of protein for fish. For every one ounce of fish, there's five grams of protein. And I told your listeners that they should be eating a minimum of 30 grams and more optimally be 50 to 55. So you're looking at if, you know, five ounces of a beef burger, five ounces of chicken would be 35 grams of protein. So it's easy, you know, so someone could do that for four meals, or if they want to be say more optimized or eat less, if they're doing time restricted feeding, they could do 50 grams of protein. And that would be, you know, obviously you just calculate that out and you do that twice a day with a yeah. smaller snack in between. And that yeah. works too. You just have to determine what is, you know, what works in your lifestyle. You really want to hit that uh, 24 hour goal, whatever that is. Ideally it's one gram per pound ideal body weight. The reason I use that is because it's a defendable number. Um, but it doesn't have to be at that high of an end. So if an individual wants to have a starting point, they could shoot for 30 grams, three times, 30 grams of protein, three times a day. Okay. And, and what's your thought on some protein supplementation when people are just, you know, trying to increase that protein with, mm -hmm. you know, weight, weight protein shakes. I mean, things like that. So that's a great question. Um, whey protein is a great source of protein for many reasons. It really can be thought of as a food matrix and it has all kinds of bioactive compounds like alpha lactalbumin or lactoferrin. What is great about whey in particular is that it has high amounts of branched chain amino acids, in particular leucine. And leucine is the amino acid that is necessary to trigger muscle protein synthesis. 
And that comes out for one scoop of whey protein, you'll get two and a half grams of leucine, which is the, you know, it's kind of like the minimum amount needed to stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So you could go higher, but that's a great place to start. Good. Okay. So since we're still on protein, uh, you talked about, you know, uh, protein quality, having the leucine that you just mentioned, the lysine and methionine. Mm -hmm. uh, so how particular do people need to be about their protein and about their meats to get all those? And I guess I'm, I'm talking about, you know, maybe yeah. the grass fed, grass finished beef. I, I don't worry about it. And all that. Okay. I don't think people need to worry about it. You're not, um, if you can afford grass fed, grass finished, great, but it shouldn't, you know, price point shouldn't be a defining factor, whether you're going to eat baked potatoes or you're going to eat chicken or beef. I think that there's a lot of misleading information regarding regenerative agriculture. I think it's amazing. I also think that conventional raised beef, if done well, has its benefits, right? We have a, a population to feed. And if you decide that, you know, grass fed, grass finished is the only thing you're going to eat, then that can be extremely expensive. And if it's expensive, then you may decide that you're going to make other choices. And those other choices typically are carbohydrates. Gotcha. So gotcha. that being said, I am not against conventional raised beef at all. Um, you know, a popular trend right now that I've talked a lot about it on my show is doing some intermittent fasting. Are you a proponent of that? And does that make it harder to get that amount of protein in that you're recommending? So if we were to define intermittent fasting as eating in an eight to nine hour window, so everything else is, I mean, that's how I define it. So time restricted feeding would be eight to nine hour window. You can absolutely get your amount of protein needed within that space. You know, there's really no benefit of going up past 55 grams of protein per meal. So for an individual like you, maybe, you know, 55 grams three times a day brings, you know, that might not hit your protein amount. Is that a problem? No, not really. Um, but you would maybe consider adding in one other meal. So this is, you know, I typically have three meals in a time restricted window because with protein, there is the machinery, it's called mTOR. The machinery needs time to reset. A feeding between four, really five hours apart is best because it allows for the, you know, for the complexes within the body to reset. And that's something that, you know, you have to take into consideration for the average person. You could do time-restricted feeding, not an issue. If you're looking to put on skeletal muscle, it's probably not um, the best or the most ideal strategy. So I'm glad you brought up mTOR because I was going to ask you about that. Um, I'm sure you're probably familiar with Dr. Uh, Walter Longo, you know, who, who does a lot of uh, uh, longevity research. And so he would say, and I've talked briefly about this on my show before, um, and, and guests have kind of dismissed his recommendations, but I'd, I'd like to hear your take on it. But um, so he would say that eating a diet high in protein will increase mTOR, which will therefore increase risk for things like cancer and decrease longevity. Uh, what say you to that? Well, first of all, we should define, um, so mTOR is mechanistic target of rapamycin. mTOR is in every cell in the body. And when you think about mTOR, you can think about it in skeletal muscle as it relates to a nutrient sensing organ. So skeletal muscle mTOR and skeletal muscle is a nutrient sensing organ. Skeletal muscle mTOR is exquisitely sensitive to amino acids. Okay. The rest of the body, like pancreas and liver, are much more sensitive to excess insulin and excess calories and carbohydrates. Okay. So when you think about mTOR, 
then you would think that a vegetarian vegan diet that is much higher in carbohydrates and, you know, if it's not calorie controlled, is a much more potent stimulator of mTOR. Another situation is when you think about mTOR, exercise stimulates mTOR and skeletal muscle. So protein overall targets skeletal muscle mTOR. The idea that saying protein is what causes cancer is like saying exercise causes cancer. Not to mention that they've done all the, they've done multiple analysis, right? Annals of Internal Medicine has, have done multiple analysis of protein ingestion and cancer. So it's a risk ratio or relative risk. And they know that um, smoking, and I'll just give your listeners um, just to kind of lay it out there, sm- uh, for a risk ratio to be considered clinically significant, the number needs to be above two. Smoking and cancer, the relative risk is 12. All the data, all the data, I just, I just saw a recent meta-analysis, you know, headlining dietary protein increases risk of cardiovascular disease. If you look at the statistics and you look at the risk ratio and you look at the relative risk, it's 1.1. So it's not clinically significant. And Walter Longo's work doesn't show that it's clinically significant either. So the idea that protein causes cancer, well, number one, what kind of cancer are we talking about? Like what? Number two, what is the mechanism by which it causes cancer? mTOR is not a oncogenic um, uh, gene in of itself. Like there's not some way that it magically causes cancer. It's a growth promoter. Mm -hmm. So something else is causing an issue, you know? So you have, one has to define why, you know, it's just that they want to make animal products bad. Exercise isn't bad, but exercise stimulates mTOR. If you really are worried about protein and if you're really worried about cancer and you're really worried about mTOR, you shouldn't be overweight. You shouldn't be over consuming carbohydrates and you shouldn't be over consuming calories. Agreed. Yeah. I mean, there's just no science to, to back up that. Right. Walter Longo is also, you know, has his own biases. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, well, I want to ask briefly and, and, and I want to talk about carbohydrates and fat here in a second, but uh, while we're still in protein and amino acids, uh, are you a fan of taking extra like branched chain amino acids or essential amino acids? Do you think there's any use in those? Yeah. So essential amino acids are different than branched chains. Branched chains are leucine, isoleucine, and valine. Those can nicely complement if an individual is more pescatarian. Um, and they don't want to overeat, or if someone is looking to really modify body composition, you could add in some branched chain amino acids and, and that works quite well. So you can add in a three ounce meal of fish and add in five grams of branched chain amino acids. And it brings it up to a higher quality of protein as it relates to stimulating mTOR muscle protein synthesis. Essential amino acids are great. They, you know, you can utilize them in place of foods if you would like, but you know, my philosophy is that you're getting a lot of other nutrients from foods. You're getting, you know, zinc, selenium, iron, carnitine, creatine. These are all added benefits. So, you know, you have to think why, why are you eating? And you're eating for skeletal muscle health, in my opinion. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's a good segue to my next question, which is so uh, about maybe fats and and carbohydrates. So Mm -hmm. in your opinion, I mean, we should base most of our meals on the protein source, but then we're going to add some fat, add some carbohydrates. I mean, what are, what are your recommendations? So carbohydrates are meal-based recommendations. For some reason, everybody thinks about carbohydrates as a 24 hour period, but it's not, it's really a meal to meal response. You have to determine how, what your carbohydrate threshold is. And anyone who is sedentary, their carbohydrate threshold, whether they're man or a woman is going to be at the upper limit, 50 grams of carbohydrates per meal. 
The way that breaks down is that you get 30 grams goes to glycogen. You have obligatory use from, you know, organ systems, a GI tract, your brain uses some and skeletal muscle uses some. So in a two hour period, it would take two hours to be able to dispose of that carbohydrate meal if you are not exercising. Now, the rest of the carbohydrates should be earned. An exercising individual for exercise over 120 beats per minute or a higher VO2 max, you can earn your carbohydrates. And, and that, that is certainly variable based on the activity and based on the person, anywhere from 30 to 70 grams of carbohydrates per hour. Typically, even with my professional athletes, I never recommend going that high. Of course, it depends. Um, it really depends on what they're doing. You know, if they're doing endurance, that's quite possibly a good strategy. But for the average human, you know, you have to think about carbohydrates in a meal tolerance basis because of the way in which you define diabetes is managing that blood sugar in a two-hour period. So you need to think about glucose disposal in that two-hour period. And do you recommend adding healthy fats? I mean, obviously you're getting some if people yeah. are eating, you know, red meats and stuff. What's your thought on that? Yeah. I think it's all just depends on your caloric load. An individual is going to know if they do better with fats versus carbohydrates. I mean, most people know. I don't think that you need to add in extra fats because the foods that I recommend are typically, um, you know, have fat in them. Uh, it's totally personal preference. And listen, the body doesn't need carbohydrates either. For every 100 grams of protein, your body can make 60 grams of carbohydrates through gluconeogenesis, give or take, depending on, you know, how you push the system or what your meal was the day before. But body is always going to need to um, dispose of that amino acids, okay. those amino acids. So we talked about the nutrition piece and obviously mm -hmm. you're focused on building muscle. Um, yeah. And so once you, you talk to people about maybe increasing their protein or getting adequate protein, I would think the other piece of that is going to be, uh, you know, building muscle through exercise, weightlifting. Yeah. What is your recommendation in regards to all that? Yeah. So it's interesting. I have always been in the school of thought. If you don't want to quit at least once during your training session, you're probably not working hard enough. And is that great for building muscle? It is. Is that feasible for everybody? It's not. So, you know, it's interesting. There's been a lot of research that has come out of McMaster University, Stu Phillips lab, and it shows that an individual can work at a lower weight and a higher volume, as long as they're going to fatigability, that they will have some of the same benefits as the equivalent to heavy resistance exercise. Um, so again, it is so personalized and there are people that just do this for a living. Um, you know, I think that you should be working every muscle group twice a week, at least. I do think that an individual should throw in, you know, it all depends on, you know, where they are starting from, but high intensity interval helps with insulin sensitivity. So I always recommend that people are doing that. If you are an older individual and you haven't been moving a lot, then starting with machines is great. Uh, you know. Uh, doesn't have to be kettlebells or anything crazy, but you need to go to fatigability. You know, whether it's 20 to 50% your one rep max and you're going to fatigability versus an 80 to 90% heavy lifting session. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think we probably, probably in general see a different population. You know, I'm here in the Midwest where obesity is, we're, we're one of the highest in the nation, not the highest, but we're close. And so um, for a lot of people, sometimes it's just getting them to move is a good first step. And, you know, and then once you get them, once I get them moving, then we can start talking about getting in the gym and doing other stuff. But for right. a lot of people, if I start talking about hit training and stuff is, you know, it's just, <laughs> right. Not, but you're inspiring stuff. them, right? You're getting yeah. them there. Yeah. I hope so. Hope you're, so. you're getting them there. Uh, 
And so tell us, if you will, you know, with all these things that you recommend, I mean, are there any success stories that stick out in your mind of just, you know, major transformations of, of people doing this? Gosh, like all of them. I mean, okay. So the CEOs, those guys know because you're just getting them to do their sleep apnea studies. You're getting them to not hurt themselves, those guys. And those are all success stories, but you know, as it relates to nutrition, I mean, gosh, I mean, my retention rate in the practice is very high. So the patients, I mean, I have a whole list of patients right here that, you know, for my book that are going in for transformations. I mean, I've had some women who've come in, who've been to everyone and can't lose weight and they've lost 40 pounds, uh, you know, women that have really struggled with a lot of like binge eating or those kinds of things. And we've created incredible structure and put in some personal integrity and they've lost weight, you know, and I also do a lot of the obscure things. So why an individual who is calorie controlled, optimized for diet, can't lose weight. Um, those individuals, I tend to look at deeper pathology mm-hmm. and whether it's parasitology or environmental toxin exposure, there's other things that for whatever reason act as endocrine disruptors. And so short of those maybe more unusual things, do you feel like the success that people have with you is just based on the fact that they're now building muscle and then that's in turn increasing metabolism and that's how they're now able to lose weight? Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I just don't do natural remedies and diet, right? So I am a physician like yourself. I will use medications if needed. Um, I really work hard to optimize their hormones. I have no trouble adding hormones to their plan. Um, Yeah. So I believe it's really a combination of number one, good nutrition. Number two, they have to be there training. And then the rest of it falls into place. I mean, you use augmented medications if you need it and hormonal strategies, sleeping, I always test for sleep apnea, all those other things. Gotcha. Um, Take us through quickly, if you will, uh, a typical day in your life as far as nutrition and exercise. And that may be a little different now. I know you recently had a baby, but um, what's (laughs) kind of the, what's kind of the norm for you as far as, you know, type of foods that you eat? type of workout that you do? So for me right now, I'm really working on getting that baby weight off. And so I'm just working on really getting back into training. I will get up in the morning and do 45 minutes of cardio and that'll be longer and more than I usually do. So usually I would get up and do, I have a gym set up in my house and I usually would do airdyne, an airdyne or a ski erg for time, uh, really high intensity, wanna vomit, hate your life doing it, but I don't have any bandwidth right now. I, or I don't have any gas. Like I don't have an engine right now. So right now what I'm doing is I'm doing lower intensity till I can just get some of that stamina up. So I'll go to the gym, I'll do the stair mill and I'll do some intervals. But again, I'm pretty deconditioned because all I did, I was, I had two babies in under two years. What I did a lot of was kettlebell swings. I did a lot of kettlebells and that can build some endurance, but it's not soul crushing ski erg for time. Uh, I'll do that every day. And then I will lift later on in the afternoon every day. And then this next coming up week, I will start add, I I have a lot of deadlines this week, but then I'll add in some more kettlebells, swings, squats, get-ups. And then I try to do some kind of walking during the day too. You're you're moving a lot. Uh, And then what is a, what is a typical diet look like for you? So Right now I'm still fasting. It's what 1215. I'm still fasting. I will, after this, I'll probably get a really small something. I won't even hit 30 grams of protein. I'll I'll try to fast. Maybe I'll even get a black tea. 
um, fast till a little bit later on in the day. And then I'll get in, you know, a couple beef burgers and maybe some jalapenos and a little bit of fat. You know, I'm not lifting an incredible amount. So I'm not super hungry right now. And then I'll do that two more times and then I'll call it a day. Okay. Really, really easy. Um, you know, I think that it doesn't have to be overcomplicated. I do take higher dose fish oil and vitamin D, all that really helps skeletal muscle. Um, yeah. And then I just started on metformin, which is great. It's not great to use around your workout, but it is great for improving insulin sensitivity. Mm -hmm. And right now, because it's not as if I'm training so hard, I'm depleting all my glycogen. I'm just not. So that it's a good little tool. Well, very good. Um, so as we wrap up here, I always ask my guests if they could give us one health tip that would make us healthier today, what would you say? Got to increase your protein intake, animal-based protein, high quality protein. Okay. If your listeners did that one thing, they would be amazing. So, uh, I'm curious, I've, you know, had a couple of people on here, it's been a while, but, you know, talking about the carnivore diet, uh, which is obviously a, a lot of protein. Um, what's your thought on that? I mean, a diet that you choose, I think the human body is very resilient and you can do, you know, multiple different, different diets and they can work for individuals, uh, during their time. I think, you know, there is some good data to suggest that fiber and phytonutrients are good and good for us, which perhaps you don't get on a carnivore diet. That being said, do I think that there's a place for a kind of a carnivore reset? Yes, totally. Yeah. And again, I think that we're just starting to learn more about what the gut microbiome does. There's a couple papers out, new papers, one paper just out in nature that talks about how the body can generate its own amino acids in the, you know, from the bugs that's never even been thought of before. That's crazy. It means that we might have to rethink what an essential amino acid is. Okay. So how can people get a hold of you? I know your website is yep. drgabriellion.com. Is, is that how people yep. get a hold of you? Is that the best? Yep. Um, you can check out my website if they're interested in being a patient, it's application based, uh, only. And I'm very active on Instagram and my YouTube is growing. I do a ton of education there. It's all free education. I have a great newsletter that I write myself and I write all my Instagram. I do all my own writing. So if individuals are wanting to sign up for my newsletter, it's curated and same with my IG. Okay. And they can get all that through your website or find all that through there. And yes, okay. they can. And did I hear you say you're coming out with a book? Yeah. 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 That'll be in another year. We're okay. still working on all that stuff, but yes, yeah, okay. I am. Do you, uh, do you have a title of it yet or? No, not yet. I mean, I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to call it. The editors will probably have some say in that. Gotcha. Okay. Well, uh, we really appreciate your time today, yep. uh, Dr. Lyon. And so hope everyone enjoyed and um, appreciate you guys listening and we will talk to you next time. All right. Thank you for listening to fit RX. I invite you to share this with friends and family you would like you can check out our website at vibrantlifedc.com or you can email me at drgreg at vibrantlifedc.com.